Welcome to a Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activity. This update covers a period from April 29th to May 31st. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, on May 2nd, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals denied Slack Technologies' request for review of a September three-judge panel ruling in Perini versus Slack Technologies. In that ruling, a majority of the panel held that investors in Slack Technologies' 2019 direct listing could move ahead with a securities class action, even though they could not prove the Slack shares they bought were traceable to an allegedly misleading registration statement. The ruling reiterated concerns CII raised about direct listings with a capital raise in a September petition filed with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. A Slack technology spokesperson told Reuters on May 4th that the company plans to petition the United States Supreme Court to review the Ninth Circuit ruling. Number nine, on May 19th, the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs held a hearing for two nominees to be commissioners at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The two nominees are Jaime Lizarraga and Mark Ueda. Mr. Lizarraga, who serves as a senior advisor to the U.S. House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi, would take SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee's seat on the commission. Mr. Lizarraga said during his testimony that the most enduring lesson from the 2008 financial crisis is that poorly regulated markets can have devastating consequences for working families and for the broader economy. Mr. Lizarraga promised to focus on making sure regulations keep pace with rapid technological changes in the markets and on facilitating capital formation for small businesses, particularly in underserved areas. Mr. Ueda has spent the past 15 years at the SEC advising commissioners and chairmen as part of the executive staff and serving in the Division of Investment Management. Since January, Mr. Ueda has been detailed by the SEC to serve as Securities Counsel to the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Ranking Member Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. Mr. Ueda would fill the seat vacated in January by former Commissioner Elad Reisman. Mr. Ueda pointed out in his testimony that his service in 2004 as chief advisor to California's securities regulator would make him one of the few with this state level experience to serve as a member of the SEC. Mr. Ueda shared a story about how his grandfather achieved the American dream of running a produce company despite major setbacks and discrimination. Mr. Ueda said that that experience helped shape his view on the need for startup financing and capital formation. As of the date of this episode, the Senate Banking Committee has not yet taken a vote on the two nominations, which is the next step in the formal nomination process. Number eight, on May 4th, the Republican members of the U.S. House of Representatives 
Oversight and Reform Committee sent a letter to U.S. Securities Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. The letter expressed concern that the SEC's March climate disclosure proposal could impact companies that are not publicly traded or subject to SEC regulation by requiring them to disclose climate information simply because they conduct business with publicly traded companies. The letter explained that since the rulemaking proposes to require most companies in the S&P 500 to disclose greenhouse gas emissions from both their supply chains and consumers of their products, private companies that generally do not fall within the SEC's jurisdiction would be affected by the proposed rules. The letter says the proposed rulemaking represents the largest expansion of SEC authority without a clear legislative mandate. To better understand the SEC's intent when it drafted the proposed rules and to gauge the role outside groups played in shaping them, the lawmakers asked the commission to send them all documents and communications referred to or relating to the proposal since January 20th, 2021. Specifically, the lawmakers asked to see communications between and among at least three sources. One, SEC staff. Two, SEC staff and Brian Deese, the director of the National Economic Council, or any other member of the National Economic Council. And three, communications between SEC staff and asset managers, investors, and non-governmental organizations. Number seven, on May 5th, the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services ranking member Patrick McHenry of North Carolina and Representative Bill Heisinga of Michigan jointly sent a letter to Committee on Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters of California. The joint letter urged Chairwoman Waters to convene a hearing immediately with the full U.S. Securities Exchange Commission to discuss the commission's unprecedented rulemaking agenda. The joint letter expresses concern that the SEC recently has taken several actions outside the scope of its authority and jurisdiction without giving stakeholders a fair chance to provide input by setting short and overlapping comment periods. Number six, on May 9th, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission announced that it was extending the public comment period on its March climate disclosure proposal from May 20th to June 17th. The SEC also announced it would reopen for 30 days after the publication of the reopening release in the Federal Register, the comment period on its February proposed rulemaking to enhance private fund investor protection. CII submitted its comment letter on the February proposal on April 17th and a comment letter on the March proposal on May 19th. Number five, the May 18th, U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Ranking Member Pat Toomey, Pennsylvania, and Senator Dan Sullivan, Alaska, introduced the Investor Democracy is Expected Act, or Index Act. The Index Act appears to be aimed at the voting power of Wall Street's largest investment advisors and their index funds. The Index Act would require investment advisors of passively managed funds to vote proxies in accordance with the instructions of fund investors not at the discretion of the advisor. The advisor would be responsible for passing through the proxies, collecting the instructions, and voting according to the investor's wishes. The press release accompanying the Index Act states, quote, with passive investing exploding in popularity over the past two decades, these firms have quietly become 
the largest owners in almost all U.S. public companies. As such, they were able to leverage the investments of millions of index fund investors into the dominant voting block at shareholder meetings, unquote. Any action on the bill in this Congress is unlikely. Number four, on May 23rd, U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, Internet Affairs Chairman Sherrod Brown of Ohio and U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services Chairwoman Maxine Waters of California sent a letter to U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler. The letter urged the SEC to require the disclosure of standardized data of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and disability status in all future rulemakings related to human capital management and diversity. Although they described the recent amendments to the Employee and Workforce Disclosures in Regulation SK as a helpful step beyond the longstanding requirement that companies disclose only the number of persons employed for the fiscal year, the lawmakers expressed concern that the new workforce disclosures were generally minimal and idiosyncratic from firm to firm. Accordingly, in light of recent shareholder proposals demanding more data on human capital and diversity, equity, and inclusion, they argue that public company disclosures should include at least two items, one, corporate board, executive leadership, and workforce diversity data, and two, information related to supplier diversity and procurement. Number three, on May 9th, CII submitted a comment letter to the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission in response to their March proposed rules on cybersecurity risk management. The I's letter says the proposed rules will improve the ability of investors to analyze risk at the company level while also conveying systemic benefits to investors, consumers, and U.S. economic security. Correspondence also predicts that the proposed rules will provide incentives for companies to implement effective cybersecurity strategies. CI asserts in his letter that cybersecurity is an integral part of a board's risk management. To effectively perform this oversight, directors must understand management cybersecurity strategy, learn where cybersecurity weaknesses lie, and support informed, reasonable investment in the protection of critical data and assets. CI's letter also says that investors need to know if the companies in which they invest have effective cybersecurity protocols in place. Help them determine this, CI recommends that companies disclose each year in their annual reports and proxy statements information about cyber expertise among their board members. Sure that board members with cybersecurity expertise will not be subject to a higher level of liability than other directors, CI supports the SEC's proposed safe harbor provision. CI's letter also supports 8K disclosure of material cybersecurity incidents and of smaller and more frequent attacks that become material in the aggregate. Given the sensitive nature of such incidents, CI agrees that it would be appropriate companies to exclude from such filing specific technical information relevant to vulnerabilities and planned responses. Number two, on May 25th, the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission proposed two new rules that would give investors more clarity about investment funds that take environmental, social, and governance factors into account. The first proposed rule focuses on the names rule which requires that registered investment companies with particular investment types, industries, geographies, or taxes on strategies must invest at least 80% of the value of their assets consistent with their names. Names rule was last updated in 2001. 
The SEC proposes at least four changes to the names rule. One, broaden the 80% requirement to apply to funds with names suggesting that they invest in companies or investments with particular characteristics, including ESG-related funding. Two, require funds that drift below the 80% requirement to come back into compliance in a timely manner, in most cases within 30 days. Number three, improve transparency around how the fund's investment methods match its name. Specifically, the proposal would require a fund to expose how it defines the terms in its name and selects investments in line with its name. Funds also would have to indicate which holdings count toward the 80% requirement and update record-keeping processes around names rule compliance. And number four, the proposal would require funds to use the notional amount of derivatives rather than the market value for determining compliance with the 80% requirement. This is important as funds increasingly hold derivatives. To address greenwashing by some funds that seek to capitalize on the surge in demand for ESG-themed investing, the proposed rule would subject ESG fund names to the 80% requirement because their names suggest that they invest in companies or investments with particular characteristics, specify that funds that consider ESG factors, along with but not more significantly than other factors, sometimes called integration funds, cannot use ESG-related terms in their name. The second proposed rule issued by the SEC, also on May 25th, would ramp up the required disclosures for investment advisors and funds that advertise that they take ESG factors into consideration when making investment decisions. SEC Chair Gary Gensler said when an investor reads current disclosures, it can be very difficult to understand what some funds mean when they say they are an ESG fund. And he cautioned that there is also a risk that funds and investment advisors may mislead investors by overstating their ESG focus. To provide more clarity about these funds, the SEC proposal would take a layered approach, basing the required disclosure on how central ESG factors are to a fund strategy, with a concise overview in the prospectus, supplemented by more detailed information in other sections of the prospectus or in other disclosure documents, all of which would be reported in XBRL. Generally, the proposed rules would require these funds to provide investors with at least three categories of information. One, information in the prospectus about what ESG factors they consider along with the strategies they use. This could include, for example, whether a fund tracks an index, excludes or includes certain types of assets, uses proxy voting or engagement to achieve certain objectives, or aims to have a specific impact. Details about the criteria and data they use to achieve their investment goal, as well as more specific information about their strategies, would also be required to be disclosed. These disclosures would enable investors to dig into details of a fund strategy. And number three, relevant metrics would be required to be disclosed. For example, certain funds would be required to report the greenhouse gas emission metrics of their portfolios and an impact fund would be required to disclose metrics about an annual progress toward its ESG goals. The comment periods for both proposed rules are 60 days after their publication in the Federal Register. CII 
currently plans to submit comment letters in response to the two proposals. And the number one most significant development in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation for the period from April 29th to May 31st occurred on May 19th. And CII submitted a comment letter to the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission supporting the basic disclosure requirements in the SEC's March proposed rule entitled the Enhancement and Standardization of Climate-Related Disclosures for Investors. CI's letter recommended changes to the proposed initial compliance dates and to the threshold for the proposed footnote disclosure on climate-related metrics and impacts. Overall, CI's letter supported the SEC's proposed disclosure requirements on climate-related risks, scope one, scope two emissions, and scope three emissions with certain proposed combinations for companies. However, the letter explains that CI believes an extension of the initial compliance dates by at least one additional year is critical provide sufficient time for registrants to develop and implement processes control over the proposed disclosure requirements before being required to obtain reasonable assurance over the sustainability information. CI's letter also says that it's recommended extension of the initial compliance dates of any final rule of at least a year would combine with the SEC's proposed transition periods could help better ensure that the resulting disclosures are based on information that's more consistent and reliable. Adopted this year, the proposal would require large accelerated filers to disclose scope one and scope two emissions starting with fiscal 2023 and scope three emissions starting with fiscal 2024. Although CIH only supports the SEC proposal to include a note beyond financial statements providing information about climate-related metrics and their impact, as well as information about how each metric is derived, CI does not support the proposed threshold for reporting that information. The agency is proposing a bright line 1% threshold for the footnote disclosure. CII is recommending instead a materiality threshold. CII's support for the proposed note also rests on the SEC extending, as previously indicated, the proposed rules and issue compliance dates by at least one year. CI explains in this letter that, in our view, the revisions that we have recommended could strike a better balance between the anticipated benefits to investors and the net cost of collection, reporting, and auditing of the proposed no disclosures. CI's letter also backs the proposed rules provisions that would require companies to disclose, one, their board's oversight of climate-related risks and the actual potential impacts of their climate-related risks on its strategy, business model, and outlook. Two, a narrative discussion of whether and how any of their identified climate-related risks have affected or are reasonably likely to affect their consolidated financial statements. And three, the parameters, assumptions, and analytical choices and the projected principal financial impacts on their business strategies for each scenario the company voluntarily reports. CI's letter also generally supports the proposed requirement that companies disclose their scope three emissions for the fiscal year if material, but only if the SEC adopts all of the following six proposed combinations. One, a transition period, including extending initial compliance dates by at least one year, as referenced earlier. Two, a liability safe harbor. Three, a limitation on the proposed disclosure to value chain emissions that are overall material. Four, no bright line quantitative threshold for the materiality termination. Five, the exemption of smaller reporting companies. And six, a conditional omission of required information. CII also supports the proposed rules requirement that accelerated filers and large accelerated filers obtain an attestation report covering the scope one and scope two emissions disclosure. 
That support, however, is conditioned on the SEC adopting its proposed three-year transition period from limited to reasonable assurance, and the SEC adopting CII's recommendation about extending the proposed initial compliance dates by at least one year. Finally, CI's letter also generally backs the SEC requirement that the attestation reports be prepared using standards established by a body or group that has followed due process procedures and by a provider who at a minimum is an expert in greenhouse gas emissions with significant experience measuring analyzing, reporting, or A-testing greenhouse gas emissions and who is independent from the company. That completes my monthly corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at cii.org. Till next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.